Genesis 6, verses 1 to 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Uh, we are uh, resuming our series in uh, Genesis. So we're going to spend almost, almost all our time in that first uh, uh, rather odd reading from Genesis on page 10. However, before we look at page 10, can I ask you to go take your service sheets and go back to page three? Go back to um, almost the beginning of the service to the confession of sin. Now, um, if you've been around Emmanuel for a little bit, you know that every single time we meet, we end up confessing our sins. That's part of our uh, standard practice. Um, but there's something odd that I want to point out, maybe you've noticed it before, in this particular confession uh, that you get in morning prayer. Take a look at it. It's in the bold print there. It says this, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. Stop there. Uh, here's my question. I wonder if you've ever asked this, if you're familiar with that prayer. Why do we confess the devices and the desires of our own hearts? So, part of sin, according to that um, confession, is following the devices and desires of our hearts too much. Devices, by the way, is an old word. It means intentions. Um, if, if you pray morning and evening prayer, then you pray this prayer every day. Why would we pray this prayer every day? Maybe twice a day for some of us, morning and evening, why would we confess the devices and desires of our own hearts so frequently? Does that make sense? Uh, I mean, and part of the reason I ask that question, I mean, you know, um, <laughs> the, you know, the great uh, theologian um, Yoda and uh, Obi-Wan, um, aren't they always telling Luke to follow your feelings or, or search your feelings or listen to your feelings? I don't know, whatever it is. But but that kind of thought of, of, of follow your feelings or uh, search your feelings, it, it kind of resonates because I think a lot of us have a, a deeply held view that if I'm going to really discover who I really, really am, I need to interrogate my desires and I need to interrogate my feelings and I need to search the intentions of my heart because that's where I will find who it is that I really am. You, you can identify with that, right? And yet this... Confession goes right against that idea. Why? 
And then keep that in your mind and go back to our reading. Forgot the page. Um, page 10, thank you. Uh, go back to uh, page 10, and I want to show you a shocking verse. Look at verse 5. This is in the uh, Genesis reading. Um, verse 5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Boy, what comes up for you in that? Is that shocking? I think it's shocking. Does it feel like an exaggeration? And I can imagine somebody saying, um, just writing this whole thing off right away by saying something like this. This is, this is a hopelessly pessimistic view of humanity. I don't want anything to, to do with, with this. However, um, I want to ask you to keep an open mind as we read this uh, passage, which is full of strange things. And the reason I want to keep you, uh, I want to ask you to keep uh, an open mind is particularly that verse. Verse five is absolutely crucial if you want to understand one of the key themes of the Bible and if you want to understand Christianity. Because what this passage does is it holds up for us several examples of evil in a sense, full-grown. It holds up to us a few case studies of evil at its most virulent, at its most advanced stage, at its most pervasive form. And part of the point is that we can look at this reading, we can look at evil in the extreme in order to begin to recognize the more subtle movements of evil in our own hearts right now. Evil, according to this reading, is deeply and inextricably bound up with the devices and the desires of our own hearts. It's bound up in the thoughts and the intentions and the inclinations of the human heart. And therefore, in the Bible, if you want to battle against evil, it includes surrendering our desires and not just following them. Let me show you what I mean. Come into this reading and, and kind of put on a seatbelt because there's several odd things here. Take a look at verse one. It says this, when man began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took, the, took as their wives any that they chose. Okay, need to uh, do some full disclosure here. Almost every verse in this reading has a bunch of debate about it. Um, I'm not going to go into all those debates, but if you want to talk about those debates, if you want to hear some of the different sides and so forth, I'd be delighted to talk to you. Maybe I'll make myself available right down here after the service for a few minutes, and we can uh, we can uh, talk about some of the some of those views. Um, a lot of people, for instance, think that this first verse refers to angels or perhaps demons who are coming down and and somehow marrying uh, women in a way that's against God's law. Um, I'm going to argue for a slightly different view. Um, think with me. Uh, the question is, who are the sons of God in verse 1, and what are they doing wrong in verse 2? Well, the phrase, the sons of God, can also be translated sons of the gods. And in the ancient Near East, uh, the uh, kings and rulers were sometimes called uh, sons or descendants of the gods. So, for instance, Pharaoh was viewed as a son of the Egyptian primary god. Um, or in Babylon, uh, there's an, uh, a, 
epic called Gilgamesh, epic poem called Gil Gilgamesh, and the main character, Gilgamesh, uh, is uh, described as being one-third human and two-thirds divine. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but nonetheless. And even the Bible uh, in Psalm uh, 82 calls human rulers sons of the Most High. So there's good reason to think that the sons of the gods here are, are human beings. They're human rulers. They're human kings. But what is it that they're doing wrong? Because getting married isn't wrong, clearly. So what's the problem? Well, look closely at verse 2. There are three words that give us uh, insight. The words are saw, attractive, and took. The sons of God saw, that's the first word, that the daughters of men were attractive, second word. And they took, third word, as their wives any they chose. Uh, what's so important about those words? Um, do you remember uh, three chapters previously in Genesis? There's the story of the Garden of Eden and Eve who gets tempted by the snake. Do you remember that? In that reading, these three same words show up. Eve, uh, Eve saw that the fruit was good. Good is the same word as attractive in verse 2. And therefore, she took the fruit for herself. Well, what's going on? Well, Genesis is telling us that these rulers, these kings, whatever they are, they're in a way repeating Eve's sin and Adam's sin, but in a new context and at a different scale. But just like Eve, they see something. They see something desirable, and they take that something that's desirable for themselves in a way that decenters God and God's purposes, I'll show you that in a moment, and centers themselves and their desires instead. And just before we go on, what I need you to see is the tyranny of desire that's already showing up. They see something. That thing that they see awakens within them or their heart responds by a burning desire of some of some type, and they follow that desire and they take what it is that they want for themselves. And that's a pattern that plays out in sin right the way through the Bible and in our lives. And it was horrendously exploitative in this situation. Why do I say that? Well, because these rulers were setting aside God's plan and gift of marriage. Why do I say they were abusing it? Why do I say that? Well, here's why. Ancient rulers in this culture uh, often had the right to draft any woman they wanted into their harem. It's a big theme in the book of Genesis. So uh, a few chapters later in uh, Genesis chapter 12, uh, Abram and Sarai, later to be Abraham and Sarah, but Abram and Sarai travel to Egypt. And immediately, Abram knows that he's in danger. And the reason he's in danger is he knows that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is likely to identify Sarai as a beautiful woman and take her into his uh, harem. And Abram knows that in order to do that, he's likely to be killed. And therefore, cowardly, in a cowardly way, he says, uh, say you're my sister. Anyways, he does it like twice. And then his son does it another time. But what happens is, sure enough, Pharaoh identifies Sarai as somebody he wants, brings her into his harem, and God intervenes before she's assaulted. 
that uh, almost identical story occurs three times in the book of Genesis. This was a massive issue at the time. Ancient rulers trafficked women into their harems. And it is smoke in the nostrils of God. And it's one of the things that gets God so remarkably angry in this reading. Which, just as an aside, I want to point out um, that the Bible, the God that we meet in the Bible, is a ferocious advocate for women and an adversary of their exploitation. And that theme begins at the very beginning of the Bible. But go back to the reading. Because God is appalled at this behavior. But God is acts like a good doctor in this reading because he not only looks at the outward symptom, he looks underneath the symptom and he identifies the root cause. And the root cause, according to verse 5, is a disorder in the intention of the human heart. So think with me, why would these rulers exploit these women? Well, there could be many reasons, but many they all are rooted in desire and inclination of the heart. So it may have been lust, sexual desire. Uh, it may also have been greed, because if you accumulate a lot of wives, wives, there's a lot of children, and there's eventually a big workforce. It could also have been ambition, because uh, having a lot of wives was often very politically advantageous. And there could have been many, many other reasons or a complex web of all of them. But the point is that the outward behavior is driven by desires that are leading these rulers in the wrong direction. And so I wonder if you can see. Listen, I, 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 I'm sure and I, and I certainly hope that none of us in here are as wicked as these rulers are behaving. But I hope you can recognize some of the similar or same inclinations that operate in us today. The symptoms may not be as extreme, but that doesn't mean that the disease is not present. So examples, the ancient world thought it was normal for uh, powerful men to take any woman that they wanted. But our world thinks the use of pornography is normal. And both are expressions of the same inclination. And God doesn't, didn't put up with it then, and God doesn't put up with it now. And it's urgent that we learn to surrender that inclination, Emmanuel. Now, that's an obvious example. A more subtle one would be greed. Um, the ancient world thought that it was normal for rulers to be driven by a desire to accumulate wealth. Our world makes that into a virtue and calls it consumerism. And the symptoms may not be as extreme, but that doesn't mean that the disease is not present. And it's essential that we learn to recognize the subtle, sinful inclinations of our own hearts. And so I hope you can begin to see why it is that morning and night we confess that we have followed too much the devices into the desires of our own hearts. I'll give you another example. Look at verse 4. Do you see the Nephilim? What in the world are the Nephilim? Apparently there was a Noah movie a few years ago that I missed. And apparently they're really scary. Anyways, I don't know anything about it. 
not an endorsement. Um, there's a lot of different views about who these guys are. Uh, however, we get an important clue in verse four. Do you see how it calls them mighty men? Uh, a few chapters later in verse uh, chapter 10, we, we get an example of a mighty man. And it's a guy called uh, Nimrod. And Nimrod is a super successful hunter. He's a super successful leader. And he ends up, it says, he, lays, uh, he helps lay the foundation for both the Babylonian and the Assyrian societies. They both kind of claim him as one of their founders. And, and it, it seems that he's a little bit like, you know, the great man of history, like, you know, Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or Napoleon, not on that scale, but the same kind of idea. And he seems to be the guy who seeks status through uh, power, success, winning, achievement. What could be wrong with that? Well, do you know what the word Nephilim means? Uh, its root means the ones who have fallen. And it appears that these are fantastically talented people, but yet who have become enslaved by evil in a deep and profound way. And it seems that they're enslaved by their desire for ambition and their desire for power. It's as if they're wraiths, if you will, because in when the New Testament references this passage, it also seems to suggest that there's a demonic spiritual evil that's playing out in the midst of all of this, that these people seem to be ruled by an inclination to seek power that always needs another victory. They become addicted to power, and despite all of their great achievements, it's just never enough. That's a hallmark of sinful desire. It leads us to grasp something, but it's like grasping water. It just falls through our fingers and it's never enough. And these Nephilim seem to be the ones who end up in cruelty and exploitation and they become incapable of serving or sacrificing for those whom they lead. The ancient world is wildly different from ours. And yet the inclinations of the human heart remain the same because as different as this reading is from our world, can you see that it's actually not all that different? And Emmanuel, that means we have a problem. And everybody take a deep breath. This is where it gets heavy. What was it before? Look at verse six. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. How can God regret? Hold that question. Look at the word grieve. It grieved him to his heart. Um, in Isaiah, that's the word used uh, for a woman who's grieving being abandoned by her husband. Later on in uh, Genesis, this is the word that describes the anger and indignation that a group of brothers experience when they find out their sister's been assaulted. It's devastating grief combined with ferocious anger all rolled into one. And that's why it says that God regretted making humans. Sorry he'd done it. 
But God's regret is different from human regret in an important way. Human regret is a grief or an anger at what's happened. And usually it's attended by a wish that we could go back in time and do things differently. Oh, I made a mistake. God's, our regret looks backwards is the point. God's regret is also a grief or an anger at what it is that has taken place. But instead of looking backward and wishing to go back in time and change things, God's regret is a resolve to do things differently in the future. God, our regret looks backward. God's regret is a resolve forward. And he's going to make it right. And how is he going to do that? Well, in this reading, there's two ways God makes it right. One is through judgment unto death, and the other is redemption unto life. Judgment unto death, uh, verse 7. This is where God says he's going to send the flood. And verse 3 is when God puts a limit on human life. It's as if God says, I'm not going to tolerate evil forever. I'm going to stop it, and one of the stops is called death. And, friends, there's just no getting around that this is profoundly frightening and troubling. And I know it's troubling. It's troubling for me, too. However, um, I have a duty of care to tell you that sin leads to death. Uh, C.S. Lewis described death as uh, something like an emergency shutoff valve, um, that, that death in Scripture is used to limit the extension of evil, to kind of contain evil, to, to shut it down before it goes too far. Because uh, according to the Bible, if all of us followed the broken inclinations of our hearts forever, we would make this world a living hell. But that's not the whole story. And that's not the only way that God makes things right. And it's not his preferred way. This reading is frightening. There's no other way to read it. But this reading is also big with hope. Look at the last verse. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And it's a very odd verse because it kind of comes out of nowhere. Um, Verse 5 tells us that the whole world is inclined towards evil, uh, and yet here, all of a sudden, we find that Noah founds, finds favor with God, and so we've got to ask the question, how does that happen? How does Noah find favor with God when apparently nobody else can? Well, again, pay attention to the words. The word favor, you see that? It can also be translated as grace. And if you could see the next line, which we'll pick up next week, we'll find out that Noah is uncommonly righteous. He's remarkably out of sync with the normal world around him. So the question is, how did that happen? And friends, we find out that it is not through Noah's amazing willpower. It's not that he's found all these desires running about and he just pushed them down and made them right and he behaved really well we know that because in the new testament there's the book of hebrews and in hebrews chapter 11 we find out that noah's righteousness came by faith alone noah's righteousness came because he trusted in god and not himself and that made all the difference 
Why did it make all the difference? Let me try to explain. This reading begins a theme that runs right the way through the Bible. And the theme is that the human heart is inclined to evil in a way that you and I cannot fix on our own. And the background is that God designed us for love. God designed us to love him and to love each other. And because he designed us for love, he designed us with a capacity to desire big desires, desires that are bigger than they can fit in this world. But the problem is sin. Sin enters the world and sin is like a disease that scrambles the desires of the heart. Sin makes me love the wrong thing in the wrong way. So that sin, uh, there are good things that I don't love enough because of sin. And there are better things that I don't love at all because of sin. And there are bad things that I should not love, of, love at all. That sin drives me to love more than anything else. And all of it means that my heart is scrambled by sin and my desires are running in every which way like a compass that's broken. But alongside that theme, is another theme. And it's this, that God promises to give us a new heart. And you can see it in Ezekiel, and I wish I had time, but I don't. And you can see it in Galatians, and I wish I had time, but I don't. But what it is is this, God promises to change the inclination of our hearts so that we have a new capacity to love God above all and then love those whom he loves, namely our neighbors, and that God is going to reorder the heart that sin has scrambled. And Jesus came to keep that promise. Friends, here at Emmanuel, we talk a lot about the cross of Christ, how Jesus died on the cross. And through his death and resurrection, we can our, our sins can be washed away. And we can stand before a holy God with no condemnation, despite our terrible record. And that is a beautiful truth. And I hope today that if you've got shame, that that truth that you can stand unashamed before the presence of God because of the death of Jesus. Let that cause your heart to rejoice. But God's got yet another gift because Jesus came not only to forgive us and to take away the consequences of our guilt, but Jesus died and rose again to give us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's particular gift is to reach into my heart and de-scramble my heart so that I can see the beauty of Jesus Christ in a new way. And what I mean is that the Holy Spirit comes and imparts into my heart a new desire, a desire to know Jesus and a desire to love Jesus and a desire to trust Jesus and a desire to obey Jesus so that when I look at Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, I find that he is the epicenter of all my desires, that all my desires have been unsatisfied so that I could find that they only are satisfied in knowing Christ. And just like the forgiveness of sins can only come to us by faith alone, so the gift of the Holy Spirit and the new heart can only come by faith alone. You can't try hard and get a new heart. Noah found grace before God by faith. And that is the only safe course for those with scrambled hearts like mine. And so can you see why it is that we confess the devices and desires of our own hearts morning and night? Well, Emmanuel, it's not because God hates desire. 
It's because God loves us and he wants to renew us and liberate us and give us new desires and satisfy all our desires in knowing Christ and being known by him and finding in him the security we have always longed for. So I want to know, Emmanuel, can you feel that your heart is scrambled? And I ask that because if you can, it's a good sign. It's a sign that the great physician is diagnosing your heart. And the great physician is a good physician because he diagnoses your heart in order to treat you. He wants to treat you. If you can feel the scrambling of your heart, then he is now at work within you, ready now to give you something new. Will you say yes? He's ready. He wants to give you the Holy Spirit. Will you surrender the devices and desires of your own hearts? And will you invite the Holy Spirit to take control in a way that previously has not been the case? It'll change everything. Let's pray. And I want to encourage you to ask the Lord, um, what does surrendering the inclinations of your heart to him look like? And then we're going to invite the Holy Spirit into those places. Take a moment of silence and bring your heart before the Lord. What's he saying? I've got a feeling that um, there's people who have a heightened sense of shame right now. Jesus wants to heal that shame with his cross. And he wants to heal your shame with his spirit. His love is bigger than the thing you're ashamed of. I think there also might be people who are angry because dreams, ambitions haven't come true. And God's said no or appears to have said no to things you really wanted bad. And I think the Holy Spirit wants to persuade you in a new way that you've got a good father, a really good father. And for the person who's saying, all of this is for everybody except for me, the Lord says, I know your name. I've known you before the foundation of the world. And I'm calling you to be mine. Father in heaven, we bring before you all of the devices and desires of our own hearts. You made us to be a desiring people. And yet sin scrambles us. And so we invite your Holy Spirit 
to give us the gift of surrender and a new experience of healing. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.